0: You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 2, Episode 3. Well, hello there, and welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holfi, coming to you from the beautiful, cold province of Alberta, Canada. Actually, it's warming up a little bit here the last few days, so in my lovely city of Lethbridge, Alberta... The snow is quickly disappearing. My son's uh, igloo that he built on our front yard, I should have taken a picture and put it up in the show notes, it's quickly melting, so no longer can you enter it. It is basically collapsed on itself, but that is life in Lethbridge. Unlike some of the northern cities, Edmonton in particular, I think once it snows, once it stays for the whole winter. But down here in Lethbridge, the Chinook wind blows in, and the snow disappears, and it warms up, and our spirits uh, brighten, and uh, it gives us the strength to continue on. Except for that darn wind, which boy does it howl down here! I guess that's one of the uh, um, one of the curses and blessings that come all in one. Our lovely Chinook wind. Welcome to this episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I am going to be uh, releasing this episode today, January the 21st, 2017. And in this episode, I had a chance to catch up with Canadian immigration lawyer, Chantelle Deloge, who practices in Toronto, Ontario. She has her own firm out there. They do all kinds of different immigration and we'll get to her background and everything once we um, once we get to the interview stage. I wanted to just provide a few quick announcements for people who are listening, just a few reminders uh, with it being January the 21st today, those who get this podcast uh, as a live feed through iTunes will get notification when it's been released. But those who do listen to it fairly quickly, uh, remember that with the uh, parental sponsorship now, the opportunity for filing those parental sponsorship applications will end on February the 2nd, 2017. So here just in a couple of weeks and i guess really it's it's just about a week and a half and the reason i say it's important is because this is the first time in my practice where i've actually seen a lottery and that's effectively what it is so last year it was a race to file the first Um, the first people to get their applications in the queue and accepted were the ones who were able to benefit from the 10,000 spots that the government had opened up for this category. Well, now it has become a lottery. So at the beginning of January through till February the 2nd, for about a month there, they are accepting applications. And then once they receive all the applications in, then they're essentially going to do a random lottery and just pull 10,000 out. And if you're lucky enough to get drawn, congratulations. It'll be very interesting to see how this all plays out. Um, I was just about um, ready to file one just here the other day to get it into the category, Uh, but the family that I was um, going to be representing was just a little bit short of the financial obligations, the low income cutoff that they needed. They had a, a larger family and when it all came down to it we're probably going to have to wait till next year because their 2013 notices of assessment were a little bit low but uh if you can fit in there absolutely go for it there's there's nothing to lose it is a uh, you can participate in our nice first immigration lottery for permanent residents Uh, Now, we may have done this in the past. I'm not sure. But since I've been practicing, this is the first time that we have really seen anything kind of like this. If I'm wrong, send me an email and I'll update the show notes (laughs) saying, hey, we have other forms of lotteries that I just haven't thought of. And and I welcome feedback from, from everybody else that's listening. I also want to remind everyone that we now have a new immigration minister, Ahmed Hussein. And uh, Ahmed has, uh, well, Minister Hussein has, uh, he's our first Somali born refugee. And he came when he was 16, I understand, to Canada. Obviously, he's come a long way from there. And now he is our new immigration minister, which I think we're all really excited to see how things play out. We're really happy to, uh, you know, we're really, really grateful for everything that our previous minister, McCallum, did for immigration. And now we're excited to see the direction that uh, Minister Hooson is going to take our immigration portfolio. So there has not yet, to my searching, been any official announcement or statement from our new immigration minister. Uh, No crazy changes or anything like that, which tend to accompany um, uh, new ministers, and we also, I see, um, lost our ESDC, uh, or the, those of you who are uh, involved with the Temporary Foreign Worker Program. We now have a new minister there as well, and I'll I'll probably highlight them in our next podcast. But um, big news. Um, I'm going to get to Chantel's interview here in just a little bit, but I also wanted to let you know that I finished a pretty cool interview with Peter Rakai just this last week, and Peter's also an immigration lawyer practicing in Toronto, and he's covering um, quite a unique little category of permanent residents for self-employed individuals. Now, this doesn't include everybody. It's pretty limited. You've got your athletes and artists and and uh, those those types of cultural uh individuals, I guess, if you could say, as well as farmers are fit within this unique little category. So Peter's going to share some really cool insight on it. And I think if you're like me, um, I've had a few clients in the past that maybe could have benefited from this category, but it's not uh, very, um, it's not utilized a lot. And uh, because of that, We tend to focus more on the the skilled worker categories, the Federal Skilled Worker Program, Canadian Experience Class. But I think you'll find it very interesting, and Peter really did a great job. So, without further ado, I am going to jump to my interview with Chantelle Deloge. All right, I am here with uh, Chantelle Deloge. Uh, She is a Canadian immigration lawyer um, that's a senior partner with Deloge Law Group, um, an immigration law firm located in Toronto, Ontario. How are you, Chantelle?
1: I'm great. Thank you, Mark.
0: Thanks for for joining us here on the podcast. Um I was really looking forward to having you join me. If you go online and you look for immigration uh, all of the listeners and um and you you uh pay attention to the articles that are coming out in the print media or online um or even television, you know, there's a pretty good chance that you will have already seen Chantel uh, giving a little comment or uh, insight on immigration, so <clears throat> Chantelle is all over the place. So I consider myself very fortunate to have her uh, on our podcast today. So uh, I'll try not to embarrass you too much, Chantelle, but uh, that's <laughs> that's uh, that's the lead-in. So we're, I'm really happy to have her. We are going to talk today about residency obligations for Canadian permanent residents, and um, and so that's the topic that we're going to address. And before we do that, I want to give a little bit more background on uh, Chantel just for for the listeners so they can get to know you a little bit more. Um, Chantel is certified by the Law Society of Upper Canada as a specialist in both citizenship and immigration law as well as refugee law. And not all immigration practitioners are, are considered to be um, certified. So that's a, a fairly... Uh, important designation. Her practice encompasses just about everything related to immigration that you could imagine and refugee law, Uh, business classes, skilled workers, family sponsorship, you know, your traditional work and study permits, refugee cases, citizenship applications. And, and, you know, that's kind of where my practice stops. But hers continues on with uh, appeals and judicial reviews and all kinds of things. So a real, real full encompassing practice. Um, in August of 2010, she established her own law firm, thus, uh, the, the name of her firm, Deloge Law Group. And, uh, you now have, I think 13 people.
1: Yeah, I think we are 11 now. It goes mm-hmm. a little up and down sometimes yes. with some turnover, but around 11 people, I
0: think. Indeed. I, I went down one this morning, so. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So it, It happens. It happens. Um, Chantelle has been an active contributor to the Immigration Bar in so many forms, and even immigration generally across the country. She's taught immigration law at Osgoode Hall, and she's been a curriculum coordinator and lecturer for Seneca's, uh, Seneca College's Immigration Practitioner Certificate Program. She currently teaches current and uh, I should say she currently teaches current and aspiring immigration consultants uh, with both IMEDA which is um, it's uh, maybe you can describe IMEDA what is that or IMEDA I'm not sure the best way yeah, to pronounce that acronym.
1: Yeah so IMEDA stands for Immigration Education Alliance and it is an organization that provides continuing legal education for either consultants or lawyers uh, who are in the immigration field and they're looking to keep their knowledge up to date um, you know with changes in the law and things like that or or um, just to perfect their skills and to become better at different areas of law.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I I get uh, notifications and I myself have attended some of those sessions, including I think I subscribed to the one that you did on how to draft uh, awesome submissions. (laughs) (laughs) And and so I know those resources are are tremendously useful for not only consultants, but immigration uh, lawyers alike. So very cool. Very cool. Thank you. Um, in terms of uh, some of the other uh, things and accomplishments that uh, Chantelle has achieved, in in March two thousand twelve, she was awarded the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal, and I seem to think that Ravi as well is was yeah. that the same one that he'd he'd uh, obtained as well.
1: That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Right around the same time.
0: Mm-hmm. Very cool. So that's Ravi Jane, and and Ravi was a, a past guest on the podcast a, a few months back as well. So very very cool recognition and for, yeah. Sorry. Go also ahead.
1: my previous also my previous law partner as well.
0: Oh, that's right. Okay, that's <laughs> right. I forgot that that's where you, Green and Spiegel was uh, was where you uh, uh, were working as an associate and then a partner as well before you started your own your own practice. That's right. Very cool. All right. So in addition to, to that uh, recognition, um, Chantel is also appointed by the Minister of Justice to serve uh, for initial, initially three year term on the Federal Court Rules Committee. And then just recently, I guess, you were appointed for another, another three years. So what's that all about?
1: Well, so the Federal Court Rules Committee is basically a committee comprised of mostly federal court judges and some members of the private bar uh, in different areas of law that litigate in front of the federal court. And there are also some government representatives as well from things like Department of Justice, et cetera. So the aim of the committee is to be constantly improving the rules of the court uh, so that they're constantly modern, they're keeping up with technology, and also keeping up with any sort of issues uh, that are are arising in front of the courts in in, in a regular manner. So um, as an as a, a person who knows about immigration law and who appears in front of the federal court, uh, I'm the immigration representative on the committee. They also have members from intellectual property law, um, maritime law, uh, aboriginal law, that kind of thing.
0: Interesting. I know uh, I just finished uh, an interview with Richard Kerlin, and he was going over some of the ins and outs of judicial reviews. Uh, in the context of of challenging negative immigration um, application decisions, and uh, yeah, he he said that immigration forms a very healthy portion of of federal court um, actions that are, that are brought forward. And yes so. it certain
1: it certainly does and and the rules of the federal court actually um some of the rules are different for immigration matters than they are for other types of federal court litigation so uh it's such an important area of federal court practice that it actually has its own separate set of rules as well
0: huh interesting well in addition to to this work that that she's been doing um like many of my guests, uh, Chantel is currently serving as an executive member on the Canadian Bar Association's National Immigration Section. And so h- how is that going? What do they have you do in these days?
1: Well, the, the last couple of years I've been working on uh, what's called the Agenda Committee, which means um, our national conference, which takes place every year in the spring, uh, is attended by about 500 of the top uh, immigration lawyers and some immigration consultants as well from across Canada and internationally. Uh, this conference is, is a major, major portion um, of the value add of our section of Canadian Bar Association. So um, putting together that agenda and making sure that there are top of the line speakers and current topics uh, that are of concern to the immigration bar is a very important role. Uh, So the last two years I was on the agenda committee and now I'm serving in an advisory capacity to the new agenda committee and also sitting as a member at large. So, um, you know, helping with Canadian Bar Association submissions on law reform and those kinds of things.
0: Awesome. Very cool. Yeah, I had a a pleasure being involved as well uh, with with the the national executive uh, committee and it was a, an unbelievably rewarding experience there's just awesome lawyers that are that are a part of that you know people that are are interested in making the profession better and and you know i think we all want to uh to be profitable in our practices and and to to make, um, make livings for ourselves and our families. But, but at the, at the end of the day, it's just, there's so much pro bono work that is essentially, um, you know, where people are volunteering their time and and just trying to make things better at a 10,000 foot level. And that's definitely what goes on in in those committees. So, uh, yeah, just a a wealth of awesome lawyers. So very cool to see you doing that.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I really admire uh, the people on the executive of the Bar Association because they put in so many, like countless hours, uh, unpaid hours uh, and volunteer their time and they go to the meetings on their own expense and they they take uh, time away from their practices where they could be billing and uh, it's really admirable.
0: Yeah, very awesome. And a lot of the the guests, that's one of the the criteria, I guess. (laughs) that i that i use when i'm trying to select guests to come on the podcast is is to find people who are doing it right and for the right reasons and uh who are just real leaders in their field and and uh, are able to uh you know not not that individuals such as yourself need any any profile or recognition but um just to to highlight just these wonderful lawyers across the country that you know, are not, they don't make a practice of spending hundreds of thousands of dollars promoting themselves and telling the world how awesome they are, which obviously we, we can't do as immigration, well, as lawyers generally, but just giving people uh, a little bit more of a, a platform and an opportunity to share what they know and show people. So awesome. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, we have covered this intro phenomenally well, and I think people have a, a really good idea of, uh, of of who you are and the kind of practice you have and the things that you've done. Um let's jump into our topic but actually before I almost forgot the the question I ask everyone how did you get into immigration
1: well, I think immigration got into me, actually. <laughs> when, I was, uh, when I was in law school, uh, I come from a working-class family. I don't come from a family of professionals. And uh, when I started law school, I was the first person in my family uh, ever to, to go to professional school. Uh, so I realized that I was at a bit of a competitive disadvantage with my classmates because many of them came from families of lawyers and judges, and, and I didn't. So I thought, if I'm going to uh, compete uh, for a job later on in my career, I'm going to need to get some skills. So I decided to do some volunteer work uh, and specifically I started doing volunteer work with people who didn't have enough money to afford a fully qualified lawyer so they would uh, use a student lawyer. And the very first case that was assigned to me that was in 1994. Uh, it was a woman from Jamaica. Uh, I won't say her full name, of course, because of confidentiality, but her first name was Lillian. And uh, I helped this woman with her application, and we won. And. Just the look on her face and the joy and the difference that I made in her life, I became completely addicted. I I loved her. And uh, up until now, I mean, it's 22 years later, I still talk to her at least once a year. Uh, Her little girl is all grown up, uh, you know, working in a professional capacity here in Toronto. And just the difference I was able to make in her life, I thought there's nothing else I would rather do.
0: Awesome. Very cool. And so when when you graduated from law school, did you seek out an immigration firm? Is, is that kind of the direction you went or?
1: Yes, I did. So all throughout law school, uh, I, I kept working uh, with low-income uh, clients and kept helping them with their immigration matters. So when it came time to apply for articling positions, it was only natural uh, having that kind of experience that I would look to go into immigration. And of course, it gave me a, a competitive advantage as well when applying for jobs that uh, I already had some
0: experience. No, that makes perfect sense. Well, uh, the 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 practice of immigration law is is that much better because you chose to go down that direction. So, very very cool. All right, let's dive into our topic here. Um, this is something that we have not yet addressed on the Canadian Immigration Podcast, and, and that is residency obligations of Canadian permanent residents. So, why don't we just start off a little bit uh, with with maybe talking about the difference between a per- permanent resident status as opposed to the permanent resident card what what does that mean what is, what are the differences
1: well, that, that's a great question. It's one that I get all the time. Uh, because uh, there is a permanent resident card, which is a, has a validity of five years, a lot of people think that their permanent resident status is actually attached to having this permanent resident card, and it's not the case. Once a person is a permanent resident, that status is vested in their person. So it's a status that you have, regardless of whether or not you have a permanent resident card. And the only way you can lose that permanent resident status is if you voluntarily follow specific procedures to give it up, or if you there are formal procedures taken by the government to actually revoke that status from you. But because there's this thing called a permanent resident card, and because it expires every five years, people think that somehow, if their card expires, it means they're not a permanent resident anymore. And that's a very, very common misconception. The card is just a travel document. So the way I explain it to people is like, it, think of it like a passport. So, I'm a Canadian. Uh, if I have a passport and I'm not traveling anywhere and I don't need it, I might allow my passport to expire. And just because my passport is expired, it doesn't mean I'm not a Canadian citizen anymore. It just means I can't get on a plane and fly somewhere. That's the only difference. And that's a similar way to the way a PR card works.
0: Huh. That's, like, that's actually really, really great insight. So with respect to this PR card, let's dive in just a little bit. A little bit deeper now, does it make a difference if you're flying or whether you're traveling into Canada by air uh, by, by land or, or by sea? Does that make a difference in terms of you know the, this ability to travel?
1: Yes, it does. So uh, a permanent resident card, uh, you require that in order to take a commercial transport carrier into Canada. So for example, if I'm getting on a plane in India and I want to fly to Canada, I need a PR card to get on the plane. Uh, If I'm taking a train or a commercial bus or a commercial sea craft, uh, I would need a PR card in order to board that because the the commercial carriers understand from the Canadian government that they're not supposed to transport people into Canada. if they're uncertain about their status. However, if somebody shows up at the land border, like, for example, suppose I had a U.S. visa and I, uh, you know, I, I my PR card was lapsed and I'm sitting in India and I have a U.S. visa. I could fly into the U.S. and then drive to the Canadian border. And the minute I present myself at the Canadian border in front of an officer uh, if I'm a permanent resident, that officer is obliged to allow me entry into the country with or without the PR card. So it makes a very big difference. And uh, that's one of the first questions I usually ask someone if they are outside the country without a PR card is, do you have a U.S. visa? Because if you have a way to, making it to, to make it to the land border, uh, the officer does not have discretion to deny you entry because if you are a PR, you have a right of entry into Canada.
0: So that's a good point. So as a, uh, I worked on the border as an officer uh, many, many years ago, and uh, they're not always – I better be careful here because I've received some emails from border officers uh, who actually liked the podcast but didn't agree with everything that I say. Um, <laughs> they're, they're not always um, fully apprised of, of, of immigration law. And so as having to understand everything about immigration, customs, excise, everything else – Sometimes they don't understand all of the intricacies of, of immigration. So if a person's coming in in this type of a situation and the officer starts to ask questions about, well, how long have you been out and, and, and starts to actually do an informal uh, residency determination, um, like what, what does a client do? What does a person do in those circumstances? They say, I'm not going to answer your questions. I don't have to. You know, what can someone expect from a practical standpoint?
1: Right. So, as I said before, if you are a permanent resident, you have a right to enter Canada. The issue is that when you're standing at the border, of course, the officer can ask you questions. Um, The Immigration Policy Manual uh, specifically deals with this situation, and it says that once an officer makes a determination that a person is a permanent resident, the person is actually no longer obliged to answer further questions at the port of entry and can simply demand to enter the country um, without answering further questions. Now, I always treat this as a very practical matter. Um, for Depending on the person's situation, for example, if if they have not violated the residency obligation, if they are well within their rights, uh, then my advice to the person would be, why do you want to rock the boat, right? If the officer's asking you questions, if there's no trouble answering those questions, then simply answer them, even if you're not legally obliged to, um, you know, in, instead of making a, a scene at the border and getting into an argument with the officer
0: that is not- awesome that is that is phenomenal <laughs> advice that so many of our colleagues forget
1: <laughs> and- yeah I'm, I'm I'm not a fan of being uh- you know, adversarial or uh, controversial if there's no need to be. I mean, I'm all for people standing up for their rights, but, you know, you have to be practical, too. And you have to understand that the officer is just a human just like you and, uh, you know, can have, you know, gaps in knowledge and, you know, can get upset about things. And (laughs) we always have to
0: remember Wait a minute. Border officers don't get upset about anything.
1: (laughs) We all get upset from time to time.
0: <laughs> yes, like me this morning with my minus one employee. <laughs> <laughs> We're all human. Yes, we are. That's awesome. So, okay, so so they come through, so they have that option if they're coming via land. And uh, so let's talk a little bit about um, how you maintain it. So in terms of your residency obligations, what are they?
1: So every permanent resident within every period of five years has to uh, meet a residency obligation of 730 days. So what does that mean? Uh, Well, 730 days, the most common way to meet the requirement is to be physically present in Canada. So during every time frame of 50 years, so if I'm starting today and I'm looking backwards for the last five years, I should have been in Canada for 730 days physically. That's one way to meet the requirement. There are a couple Couple of uh, other ways to meet it. For example, if your spouse is Canadian and you are outside the country accompanying your spouse, maybe they're working in Dubai or something like that. You can count those days towards your 730 as if you were physically in Canada. It's treated the same way. And finally, uh, there's another exemption for people who are seconded by their Canadian employer to work for a temporary period of time outside the country. Uh, if you're working full time for that employer. Uh, you can, in some circumstances, count that time towards your 730 as well. Hmm. And at the at the end of the day, there's also, uh, if you don't meet the 730-day requirement, you can always ask the officer to consider your compassionate reasons if there was something outside your control that kept you outside the country longer than you intended.
0: So can you give us some examples of what might constitute a, a justification in, in, in that that type of a situation when you haven't quite met it, but... You know, you're asking for some compassion and some understanding. What might be some common types of circumstances?
1: Sure, I've, I've had a number of really interesting uh, circumstances. I've had situations where, for example, uh, an entire family with kids uh, had been in Canada and then the parents took the kids out of the country and lived abroad for an extended period of time. And then at the end of the day, my argument was, well, the children, it's not their fault. Uh, it wasn't their intention to stay outside of Canada. They didn't have any control over it. And now, you know, maybe one of the kids is 18 or 19 years old and wants to come back. That would be a good example. Another Another one would be, um, you know, I had to go back to my country because my mother had a heart attack yes. or, you know, my father got cancer and I'm the only child. There was nobody else to take care of them. And, you know, I thought I was just going to go back for a month, but then their condition got worse and I unexpectedly got held up over there, um, you know, longer than I intended to. So family health is a, a really common one. The the thing that immigration does not like is economic arguments. Mm-hmm. So you know, someone came over, they stayed for a short period of time and couldn't find a job that they liked. So they went to Oman or Bahrain or Qatar and found a really great job in the Middle East making lots of money. That's not really a compassionate reason. That's more of an economic reason.
0: That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Let's take a look a little bit more at these exceptions. So accompanying a spouse abroad. So as long as you are married to a Canadian citizen and you are actually with them, um, Mm -hmm. How do you prove that?
1: Right. So uh, usually it, it's sort of, it's not the, the type of example that has a lot of scrutiny attached to it because mm-hmm. it's kind of assumed that if your spouses <laughs> yeah. and you're both overseas, you're probably, probably living, living together. together. <laughs> yeah. But we, we always do go out of our way to provide additional evidence if possible. So we provide a full copy of the passports with the stamps showing that, you know, they were exiting and entering the country at the same time. Mm-hmm. So obviously together, um, we might show things like if they bought a property or had an apartment lease and another country together, joint bank accounts, uh, mail going to each other on the same address. And at the end of the day, if you can't prove any of those things, there's more than one way to skin a cat. We've even had situations where we had to, you know, request letters from neighbours or, you know, relatives who just simply attest that the couple are are genuinely living together.
0: Hmm, That makes perfect sense. Okay, let's have some fun with this. So I'm a permanent resident of Canada, but... I did love that job over in Bahrain and I'm making so much money and I've been out of the country for, oh, six years, seven years. And, and I meet this nice Canadian girl who is also, uh, you know, working overseas and, and we get married. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, so can I start counting those days?
1: You actually can. So, interestingly, uh, a permanent resident who is in violation of the residency obligation, it only matters if it's detected by immigration, because they do have to put you through formal procedures to revoke your status. So you can be in breach of the 730 days, but if nobody wrote you up to revoke your status, then you're still a PR. So if this person has been living outside the country for six years, nobody's ever done a residency determination on him, and then eventually meets and marries a Canadian citizen, he can start counting those days towards his 730. And the moment he hits the magic number of 730, he could actually apply to Knew his permanent resident card.
0: Huh. Awesome.
1: <laughs> yeah. So there's all kinds of uh, different. I, I've I've also had situations, for example, where families have immigrated and the father goes back to the Middle East and lap, You know, his residency obligation is not met, but his wife and kids live here on a full time basis. And eventually, they live here long enough that the wife becomes a Canadian. Hmm. And then, after becoming Canadian. Uh, she actually moves back moves overseas back. to with her husband, and then you know once they 're living together, he starts accumulating his seven hundred and thirty days.
0: Wow. Huh. interesting. Yeah. The law yeah. is a wonderful thing isn 't it
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs>
0: so let's let 's talk just a little bit about this working abroad so mm-hmm. sometimes it's it 's hard to to really uh, visualize what this would mean you know if i 'm working for a multinational company and they transfer me to a subsidiary in Bahrain, for instance, is would that type of a situation work, um, or is it uh, uh, is it you know it, 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 does it have to does he still have to remain on the payroll of the Canadian company even though they're all part of the same group?
1: Right. So there are a couple of key elements of of that exception. So number one, the company has to be a Canadian company and they have to be posting you abroad for a temporary reason. So it can't be that your job is only overseas and you have no job to come back to in Canada. Uh, It also has to be a full-time position. Uh, And it's not necessarily the case that you have to remain technically on the payroll of the Canadian company, but you do have to show that you're employed by them. So there sometimes can be, you know, as long as the paper trail is there to show that you're, uh, you know, working in a connected capacity, if it's close enough, it tends to pass the test of scrutiny. Uh, But the key thing is that it should be full-time. And that there should be a job that you're eventually coming back to in Canada. And that's where most people get caught up. So immigration is obviously on the lookout for people who are cooking up these kinds of employment schemes just to allow themselves to live outside the country without having to comply with their residency obligation. So immigration will look behind uh, the corporate veil. And we'll we'll want to make sure that uh, there is really an existing Canadian company, and that you're really coming back to a job here at some point.
0: That makes a lot of sense. You know, obviously, uh, people are trying to do whatever they can to to maintain their permanent resident status, and and uh, you know, especially now, it, it's so hard to get that uh, through circumstances that you know result in people having to leave. Uh, I'm Mm -hmm. sure there's all kinds of creative ways that people try to to retain it. Um, All right. So let's say this individual is coming back there, you know, and through some mechanism or another, a residency determination is triggered. So what happens when that, you know, what can people expect, I guess, to, to some extent?
1: hmm So, well, uh, first of all, a residency determination is really only triggered in three scenarios. Number one is when you're applying to renew your PR card. Number two is if you show up at the Canadian border. And number three is if you're outside the country and applying for a permanent resident travel document to come back to Canada because you have no other way to get on the plane. Uh, so if neither of those three, three things happen, nobody's going to calculate your 730 days, but suppose it does happen. So, um, If you are applying for a renewal of a PR card or you're standing at the Canadian border, uh, if the officer goes negative on your residency determination, so they look at your 730 days, they realize that you don't have it and you make your compassionate arguments and they're not buying it. Hmm. They're going to write you up uh, for removal, uh, but you are allowed a full right of appeal in front of the Immigration Appeal Division. And while you're exercising that right of appeal, you remain a permanent resident. So the officer, even though you get written up at the border, they still are going to let you into the country. You can still work and go to school and you can get a temporary PR card while you're waiting for your appeal hearing. And uh, the appeal board at the end of the day will make a determination whether or not they allow you to retain your permanent resident status. But a lot of people get confused about that because they think that because they got written up, that means that their status is revoked. But in fact, it's not revoked until you've either declined your right of appeal or you've exercised fully that right of appeal and a final decision has been made.
0: So how long does this typically take?
1: Um, If someone exercises the right of appeal, on average in Canada, it takes about two years to get a hearing. So during the time that you're waiting for your appeal hearing, you retain all of the rights and privileges of permanent resident status. So you can work, you can study, you can stay here, you can get your health care renewed, you can do anything that anyone else does. Um, sometimes what happens is that by the time you get to your appeal hearing after two years, you you know might have got a job, your kids are in school, uh, you know, your wife is also working, and you may have accumulated sufficient sufficient compassionate factors during that two years to actually win your appeal. And and that's interesting, but it, it can be it can be a bit of a risk for people to take, right? Because if they're going to you know, quit their jobs and sell their houses overseas and relocate back to Canada in the hopes of being able to win their appeal. At the end of the two years, if you lose your appeal, then, of course, you have to uproot yourself again. So it's a big decision that people have to make before they take that risk.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think a lot of people may just choose, you know, you know, when they're they're coming back, they may just choose to, to just let it go and, and, and not be willing to take that risk. But for, right. for people... To understand that you know it's taking a long time to run this, to you know to, to run the full the full course, that it may right. just op, open up an option they hadn't considered before. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. It's
1: also a problem for families because uh, suppose one per- suppose somebody immigrated to Canada as a single person, then left, was gone for a long time. Meantime, got married and had children overseas. Uh, You know, they're not going to want to come back to Canada and sit here for two years going through an appeal process while their dependents are sitting overseas, not able to be sponsored, uh, you know, while you're waiting for an outcome of your appeal. So, uh, you know, people have to seriously think about those options because even though legally they exist, it's not always practical for every family.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, I've got one final scenario. So sometimes permanent residents just want to give it up you know, for a number mm-hmm. of reasons. And one that we're seeing more often than any now is people who think they're no longer a permanent resident, but then apply for the ETA, the electronic travel authorization, just to come visit family for Christmas, for example. And uh, they are told they can't get it because they're a permanent resident. Right. But yet they don't have a card, so they can't board the plane. So so in those in those types of circumstances, what does a permanent resident do to actually relinquish their permanent residence?
1: So there's a process that you have to follow, uh, which involves filling up a brief application form and signing off uh, that you are giving up your rights as a permanent resident. And that can be done at a Canadian consulate or embassy, and it can even be done at the border. Uh, so it it basically involves a, a very short, like a two page application form, just saying that you're relinquishing your status. They make sure that you understand uh, what you're doing when you're giving up those rights, and only after relinquishing that status can you then either apply for a visa or an electronic travel authorization in order to come back to Canada on a temporary basis. And what's really interesting is that I from time to time I see cases of people who applied for visitor visas at a consulate or embassy. And got a visitor visa <laughs> yes. and came to Canada and sitting in my office wondering how to immigrate. And I'm in the weird position of having to tell them that they're already permanent residents. Oh, wow. So if, if they just would stay in Canada not leave again for 730 days, they could renew their card. Because sometimes the embassy makes a mistake and doesn't realize that they're still a permanent resident. And they go ahead and give them a travel visa.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's a very, very unique situation. Hmm.
1: I just saw a case like that literally just this morning. <laughs> wow,
0: wow. Well, this is great. I I really really appreciate the time that you've taken to share some just amazing insight, and you've you've uh, you've lobbed back all of the questions that I had uh, in in fine form, and and I you've provided a lot of insight to the listeners of the podcast on this what at times can be somewhat uh, a confusing process. So uh, thanks so much for doing that. Is there any other, uh, thought that maybe we haven't talked about in terms of, of this topic of, of residency obligations that, you know, that you think might be, um, we've covered quite a bit, uh, you know, in all honesty, but is there anything else that you'd like to add or, or close off things before we, uh, we end the, uh, the interview?
1: I guess the, the only other thing I'd like to say is that, um, you know, people need to take their permanent resident status seriously, um, it, over time, the rules keep changing, and just because you qualified to immigrate, you know, for example, as a skilled worker five years ago, it doesn't mean that if you lost your status and reapplied for it, you'd necessarily ever get it back. So, people need to um, really take it seriously in complying with the residency obligation, do their best to get those 730 days if they can, and most of all, they need to be honest about the residency pattern because a lot of people try to commit fraud in this area, mm. being afraid to lose their residence, they try to say that they were in Canada during the time that they weren't here, and that even that only gets you into even more trouble. Uh, So I really discourage people against uh, misrepresenting the facts. Uh, There are so many ways that you can ask for exceptions to the rules that you're better off to just come forward and tell the truth.
0: Right. Yes. And, you know, I think we can apply that advice to every single type of application that you make to, to, uh, to, to Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada. Well, thank you so much, uh, Chantel. Now, if people are in these difficult situations and they think, oh, I need someone who knows what they're doing to help me to see you know, how I can either save my permanent residence or otherwise, what is the best way for people to reach you?
1: Uh, probably on my direct phone line, which is uh, 647-776-7511. Uh, that rings on my desk and on my mobile at the same time, so I'm sure not to miss the call.
0: Perfect. That sounds great. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us and uh, have a wonderful uh, holiday. Thank you. You too. Okay. Take care. Well, that was awesome. Like always, Chantel just did a fantastic job. And the thing that I liked most about Chantel's interview is just how practical it was. If you're an immigration lawyer or a consultant or even an individual who's in this limbo period with your permanent residence, and you're just not quite sure whether you've got enough days to, to qualify or whether you've got a reasonable enough excuse or justification for not meeting that minimum two years and every, every five-year period, um, whether your, your rationale for being outside of Canada longer than you should have been is good enough to allow you to still keep it. Well, it's just the practical advice and direction that, um, that uh, information, I should say, that Chantel provides, not advice, but the information that she shared was wonderful. And uh, it's stuff that we can look at, we can understand, we can apply it to our you know, our circumstances and just really good practical advice. So thank you so much, Chantelle. And with all of the outreach, all of the, you know, the Canadian legal education that she does as well as, um, you know, the immigration with, with IMEDA and the other organizations, the Canadian Bar Association that she participates in and that she contributes to. And she really gives a ton back to our industry and uh, the ranks of of immigration representatives benefit significantly from her willingness to share her knowledge and understanding. And she does it in such a way that it's really easy to understand. She really simplifies it. And I think that's really the test as to whether or not someone really knows their topic, really knows their, you know, their their particular um, immigration category that they're trying to teach, is if they can take more complicated principles and simplify them down to something that any person can understand. And she did a fantastic job. Uh, like I said um, at the beginning of our interview there, it's pretty easy to see uh, how um, Chantel has, has kind of rocketed to the top, um, at least with respect to the, the the recognition she gets from her peers as being just one of the top immigration lawyers in the country. And, uh, yeah, so it was just a delight for me to have her on the podcast. So thank you, Chantel. And hopefully we can get you back again in the future. Um, there are, as I indicated in the past, a few changes coming for me here in the, you know, in the coming weeks here, and I'll talk a little bit more about it, but I'm just not quite sure how to talk about this little journey that I've been going through. Um, probably most people are like, we don't really care what you're doing, Mark. Just produce the podcast and get helpful information in there. Uh, We don't need this to be some kind of a diary. But, you know, I think I'm going to talk about some of the recent journeys that I've been through um, as I've tried to figure out the future of my practice and and the directions that I'm going to take it. And uh, immigration has changed for immigration lawyers a lot over the last few years and even for consultants. And the industry has has become uh just different even our interaction with with the with the government with the immigration officers so much of it has changed over the last few years and and I'll be honest it's not as enjoyable as it used to be and uh you know there's wonderful opportunities to help people and to be a, make a difference in their lives uh, but I've had a lot of opportunity to think about my own practice and the direction it's going and all of this social media marketing and, and even this podcast that I've been doing just to determine if this is really worth it for me. And if it's accomplishing what I hoped it would accomplish, one of the things with the podcast was for sure to get exposure for other lawyers out there that are just doing a fantastic job. And they've been so gracious to come on, just amazing. And I get wonderful feedback from them and that hands down, the purpose of the podcast is satisfied through that. But I do a lot of other social media marketing and I, I go out of my way to try to give free advice and well, once again, it's not advice, just helpful information and direction to people who really have nowhere to turn and in many cases don't have the resources To actually hire an immigration lawyer to help them and uh, you know I talked in past episodes I guess it's been a little while back now on uh, on how I tried to blog and and just provide general information that people could rely on so that they wouldn't come to my office at you know when it was basically too late and then there'd be nothing that I could do so if I could at least help people with some general information to set them straight and to keep them going down the right path then you know there's a greater likelihood that they uh, would you know, be able to avoid some of the main pitfalls that people commonly fall into. And us immigration lawyers, we see it all the time. You know, it's the same type of situation that we see time and time again that could have been avoided if people had the right knowledge. And uh, one thing I will challenge our, our new Minister of Immigration, um, the Honourable Ahmed Hussein, to do is to just be more transparent And as Richard Curlin shared in a few episodes back, actually uh, season two, episode one, he talked about how it was so important for the government to be more transparent, to share the decision-making process, to explain why they make changes to certain you know uh, immigration categories and and why they establish new programs and close others down and just be more transparent and obviously richard is is the uh the guru of uh, access to information requests and trying to shed light on what is happening behind closed doors with our government and so i would encourage our minister to be uh maybe just a little bit more transparent and also involve all stakeholders in in the discussion and i think um uh, immigration lawyers and consultants and those who actively work with people um, are just a wonderful resource of insight that in the past has not been tapped into. So that's my challenge is to uh, just to increase relationships with the Canadian Bar Association and, and other organizations uh, of of immigration representatives who can bring a significant level of understanding and insight Uh, that most definitely will help with the development of future programs and changes to our existing ones. So that is my, uh, I I guess that's about all I have to say for this podcast. I hope everyone enjoyed it. As always, please go to iTunes and, uh, and rate it. I'd love to get some more ratings there and share this with anyone you think might be interested in listening to it. Every month, this little podcast keeps on growing and there is a distinct possibility I could cross over 3,500 downloads this month. At least that's where we are on target. And, uh, you know, the best thanks that I could get for taking the time and effort to do this is just for people to share it and for it to be a uh, value to, to people. So that's all I have for the podcast. Uh, this, this, uh, beautiful, well, it's actually Saturday, January the 21st that I'm going to release it. It's been a beautiful day. And uh, I wish all of you, as always, the very, very best as you attempt to navigate this crazy world of Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. Take care.
1: Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. If you would like to contribute a question for future podcasts or wish to set up a legal consultation with Mark, please visit www.ht-llp.com.